Are we witnessing the inevitable first stages of civilization's collapse? Our guest today, Professor Michael Clare, argues, yeah, we are. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. I never start a Keeping Democracy Alive show with quotes, but I will today. These three seem quite fitting for our discussion today. Ecclesiastes said, to everything there is a season. And when a citizen asked Ben Franklin what kind of government they had set up, he said, a republic, if you can keep it. And when a Western reporter asked Gandhi what he thought of Western civilization, he famously replied, I think it would be a good idea. Well, whether we like it or not, history shows civilizations come and go. They do not last forever. Our guest today asks in a new essay, will our own civilizations perform any better than those of Chaco Canyon, the Mayan heartland, and Viking Greenland? We've thrived and prospered for so long. The idea that, as Michael Clare says, is the title of his article, we are witnessing uh, the first stages of civilization's collapse, seems like perhaps hyperbole. Or is it? Is there still time to save ourselves? Our Western civilization has gone through incredibly difficult times before, and somehow we've always come out the other side. I mean, when I look at the mad catastrophe that was the First World War, it amazes me that civilization went on after that. The Nazi Holocaust, the Russian uh, slaughter of millions, and the unbelievable proliferation of atomic weapons, on and on. Yet here we remain. Today, in the 2020s, with the surprisingly rapid onset of severe climate change, more and more of us are asking, has the threshold been crossed? Is it really too late to save ourselves? As we face seemingly sudden, often exceedingly dramatic, often deadly effects of climate change, what should we look at? What can we learn? And in a hurry. Our guest today is Michael T. Clare, who is the nation's defense correspondent, Professor Emeritus of Peace and Security Studies at Hampshire College, and Senior Visiting Fellow at the Arms Control Association in Washington, D.C. Most recently, he's the author of All Hell Breaking Loose, The Pentagon's Perspective on Climate Change. Ooh, that should be interesting. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Professor Clare. Absolutely. In your teaching at Hampshire College, you discussed with your students Jared Diamond's bestseller, Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed. And you focused on three examples, Chaco Canyon, the Mayan heartland, and Viking Greenland. I, frankly, never heard of Chaco Canyon. I don't know much about the civilizations of the other two. Take a few minutes, please, and tell us what did those three have in common as they rose, thrived, and declined? Uh, well, this is a subject of classes that I taught at Hampshire College for many years when I was a professor there and at other colleges. So that would take a while. But what I, this is all based on the work of Jared Diamond and his book Collapse, which you mentioned, and he looked at the archaeological remains and uh, other evidence of these three civilizations, all of which vanished 
uh, there, in, in the case of Greenland, all of the people who lived there, and this was around 1000 AD to 1100 AD, maybe a little longer, vanished. Uh, they perished. In the case of Chaco Canyon, many people probably perished, uh, but some survivors became the ancestors of the Pueblo villages in New Mexico today. And in the Mayan heartland of, 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 of Mexico mm-hmm. and Belarus, uh, those people, largely, probably millions of people perished of starvation, and the survivors learned how to survive using different means of agriculture. But the area where the villages, where the Mayan cities are, are virtually deserted today. So Jared Diamond looked at the archaeological evidence and, and, and it found these were once flourishing civilizations mm-hmm. and they perished. They were challenged by climate change as we are today. And the evidence suggests that in the face of climate change, their leaders chose to persist. The word is choose. Mm-hmm. Cho- chose to persist in their ways of rulership, which included mainly uh, treating most of the population as peons uh, and allowing the elites to maintain their uh, affluent lifestyle compared to the rest of the population. They didn't make any accommodations to the declining water supply, the soil uh, erosion, and other factors caused by climate change, which could have saved them, but they insisted on perpetuating their resource accumulate, their wealth accumulation. Uh. And eventually the societies couldn't support that anymore. And the whole system collapsed. So that's what we discussed in my classes at Hampshire College. So it seems, if I hear you right, there was an elite, a ruling class, if you will, that made the decisions to go and uh, uh, continue building up their personal wealth, and they treated the average person not as uh, participants in civilization who could, you know, be part of a dare I say democracy, uh, but uh, the people. The, the majority of the people were left out of the decisions. It was just about making big money for the big, powerful interests. Where That sounds awfully familiar. <laughs> well, it sounds awfully familiar. So, uh, yes, uh, the evidence, the archaeological evidence suggests that in each three cases, that even to the end, uh, there were people who were had much better diets, for example, and there, there are ways... There are the ways to to determine this, that elites lived in large homes with lots of jewelry and pottery and very healthy diets with meat and, and other rich foods, while the majority of the population lived in hovels and had terrible diets. Mm. So you can see that you, you can determine that there were ruling elites wealthy elites in these societies, and that they continued in their ways even when clearly the food supply was diminishing, meaning that the majority of the population was eating less and less and eventually starved, and many of them starved to death. 
uh, probably in in all three cases. Oh, so man. yes, we could we could see how that pattern is repeating itself today. And you know, I am old enough to remember when there was something called a middle class in the United States. People that you know, one person worked at a job, the other person often stayed home and took care of the kids, and it was enough to survive on. But nowadays, it seems like I mean, there's the the one percent, and it's really one tenth of one percent that has the tremendous, tremendous, unbelievable wealth and power and. People, there's not so much of a middle class anymore. People are without power. And, you know, one wonders about their diets as well. And, you know, they, they feel like they're left out of the picture. Well, because they are. And, you know, it's not like, I don't know about these previous civilizations, but climate change, it didn't exactly sneak up on us without warning. I mean, the first Earth Day was 1970. Jimmy Carter put solar panels on the roof of the White House back when he was in power. And when you discuss the issue with your students, did they, I mean, I, did they think any serious threats were still too far off to demand of our ruling elites that they take action and address it? Did they see the matter as more of an intellectual exercise? It was uh, climate change and serious climate change was not an immediate threat. It was still in the theoretical realm. How did they see it? Well, now we use the book Collapse by Jared Diamond as our template. And Jared uh, Diamond, after surveying the three civilizations I described, uh, Chaco Canyon from, from the period uh, around 1200 AD, uh, the Greenland civilization, mm. 1000 to 1200 AD, the, the Mayans about the same time. Uh, we use those as uh, examples, and what he, what Jared Diamond says is that what's common about these civilizations is that you could see that there, there are always going to be warning signs. Mm. There are always going to be indicators uh, before a collapse. There will be signs of pronoun for, for, for in most cases, prolonged drought. Uh, which is something that we're seeing today, yes. or dramatic and prolonged uh, shifts in climate, like temperature, which we're seeing today. Now, yes. the case, in the case of the Greenlanders, the temperatures turned colder, making food production harder. Uh, today, we're experiencing, for the most part, the opposite temperatures getting much hotter uh, consistently. Uh, but these are not, it's becoming clear, as was the case in the past, this is not a one-year-off uh -huh. exceptional year. It's not like we're having a bad year this year, and next year is going to be better. It's not like that. If we pray to the gods, it's, it's not going to be better next year. It's going to be worse. So there are always indicators and in the past. And what my students would say in answer to your question is that if we look around, we can see indicators of accumulating impacts of climate change on the on on global civilizations that are that are not being not being reacted to that are that are not being responded to in a thoughtful way. 
it, 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 my students, I'm talking now about the years, the, uh, the first decade of this century, mm-hmm. it became very clear that we have to reduce sharply our consumption of fossil fuels. This is no surprise. Yeah. And, and, and my students said that's what we have to do. But consumption of fossil fuels has continued to rise since 2005. And it's clear that our governing alert, uh, elites yeah. in China and Russia and the United States and India, despite all their talk about climate change, uh, response, despite all their talk, are favoring fossil fuel interests. Uh, in, in this country, the Republican Party is doing anything to increase mm-hmm. fossil fuel production. Same in Russia, same in China and India and other countries. So that that's that's what my students were talking about, and it's only gotten worse since then. Yeah, uh, it clearly has. And you know, as as you mentioned, there's talk, and there was I I maybe I was naive. I had some hope in the Paris Agreement of 2015, uh, and it looked to be a good step. It it, 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 it see it seemed to call for some action. Why why was that not followed? Well, see, this is the essence of the argument here, Bert. Uh, clearly, there were, there are, have been indications that the climate is in deep trouble, and that if we persist in our existing behaviors of maximum resource consumption, especially by the wealthy and the wealthier countries. If we persist in this, we're dooming the planet to a fiery hell. There's no question about that among scientists anymore. Uh, And that was the basis for the Paris Climate Agreement. But the ruling elites in the countries that matter are so tied to fossil fuel interests that they're doing everything they possibly can to perpetuate the fossil fuel industry, uh, Saudi Arabia, Russia. Russia is is one of the top the, the top three fossil fuel producers, are, or the top four are China, the U.S., Russia, and Saudi Arabia. And India now coming on, uh, and the the governing elites in all of these countries have close ties to the fossil fuel industry. In the case of Saudi Arabia, they are the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, yeah. In the United States, if we talk about states, our states as entities, mm-hmm. uh, places like Texas is yes. a, a fossil fuel state, like Saudi Arabia. And so you have these fossil fuel elites that are doing everything they can to undermine the Paris Agreement and so they're they're dooming us to a fiery hell, as I say. Yes, they are, and it does seem like that's the Republican Party. I mean, they're far right in their uh, you know anti-democracy uh, stuff and pro-authoritarian, and the authoritarians would be in the pocket of the oil-producing interests. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive, and we're talking about. What a price has and had been paid by not having real democracy, by having wealthy, selfish elites run everything 
and the uh, collapse of civilizations that happened before. Our guest today is uh, Professor Michael Clare, who has written that we are witnessing the first stages of civilization's collapse, and uh, there there are precursors to that. But, you know, I, I, we, we don't know if thresholds have been crossed. It's hard to avoid indications that they are. But, you know, people thought in the 1930s in the West that it was kind of the end that a threshold had been crossed with the Dust Bowl. It was horrible. It was a real hell on earth. And it was a disaster. It didn't last forever. A lot of people died. It destroyed a lot of farms. Learning was done about farming methods, and they did make it through. But to tell us, please, about what, what, what scientists are now calling a mega drought in the American West, and, you know, maybe if we might be able to make it through like we did with the uh, Dust Bowl. Uh, for sure. Uh, so the, the Dust Bowl was the product of a number of f- f- factors at the time, including um, poor agricultural processes. Uh, people were not as educated as they are now about how to raise crops in water-scarce areas, and I won't go on and on about that. Uh, the areas that were hit were are perennially water-scarce to begin with, and you have to be very wise in what crops you grow and how and so on. So it was partly that and partly a particularly dry period. But nobody thought then that this was anything but a temporary feature uh. and, you know, the rains would come back and they did for a period of time. But now uh, we're seeing a, a process that has no end in mm. sight, that it's likely that each year will be drier than the year before. Uh, we see this with the Colorado River, which yes. is the primary source of water to half a dozen states in the American West. Uh, since 2000, each year, the amount of water in the Colorado River has diminished. It's diminished so low that some of the dams, famous dams that were built during the 1930s under in the uh, New Deal period, uh, are no longer able to generate electricity, or we're very close to that because the water level is so low. Right. And a lot of crops that are grown in California, because they've built uh, canals to carry water from the Colorado River, which arises in the Rocky Mountains, and carry that water all, all the way to the Imperial Valley of California to grow water-rich crops, the cotton yes. and and others, vegetables and fruits, uh, that's not going to be possible anymore. And so there's large questions about whether we'll be able to enjoy certain fruits and vegetables year-round in the future. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I could go on. The point is that scientists are telling us that none of this is reversible. Uh, And this is a permanent feature of society and cities in that area that depend on the Colorado river, like Phoenix, which has suffered by crippling, devastating heat this summer, over 110 days after. And that it's unclear whether Phoenix can exist as a city Mm. in another 25 
years. There, there just won't be enough water to support a population that size. And you're gonna, we're going to see climate refugees uh, it, within the oh, United yeah. States. We're already experiencing climate refugees from Mexico and Central America, but the time will come when the American Southwest will be uh, will have to abandon its population and they'll have to move. Somebody said a long time ago how important it is to think with history. We never do that. We never do that. And when the you know Colorado River was uh, was built, it was seen as a glorious moment for Western civilization. It enabled the development of Las Vegas and Los Angeles, and no thought was given to history and what might happen in the future and putting it in the context of that. And you know, I, I just think you know that's sort of indicative of, of the path that we've been on for a while. You know, just do it now. You know, buy more stuff that uses more uh, fuel and don't even think about it. But it's it's catching up with us. And you say that Diamond, Jared Diamond, identified three key indicators or precursors of imminent dissolution. What were those three key indicators? So uh, the, the, the key indicators are first uh, a change, uh, like we were discussing, Bert, uh, Changes that are more than just a year's worth of drought, but uh, persistent drought, persistent change in the temperature, persistent changes that uh, that that indicate that make existing means of food production and and livability uh, at risk. Uh, second. That's one indicator. Second is um, taking taking um, acknowledgement of that. The leadership uh, recognizing that changes have occurred and instituting uh, uh, changes in agriculture. And uh, I I forget what the third one is. But it's a, it's 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 some combination of those. It's recognition of persistent changes uh-huh. and leadership taking uh, um, responsibility for making changes in society. Yeah, they they certainly haven't done that. What leadership has taken responsibility for is preserving the uh, power of the elite. No matter what, no matter what, yes. despite any contraindication, just uh, preserve the elite. That's who funds them, yeah. I guess, who funds their campaigns. And, you know, it's amazing. And, yes. And, and an example I gave of this is research that's now uh, indicated that ExxonMobil, the largest yes. oil corporation in the U.S., had very astute scientists on its staff, who published internal documents, you know, fully peer-reviewed and all that kind of stuff, uh, showing way in the 1980s that climate change was underway and that it was going to alter the environment and that it was going to have dreadful consequences if uh, Exxon and other oil companies continue to uh, burn fossil fuels at 
at current and projected rates, things were going to get very bad, and it would threaten civilizations, as I've said. So uh, this information was provided to the top leadership of ExxonMobil, the board of directors and the, you know, the 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 company chair and all of uh, chief operating officers. So they were aware before the public was of this scientific information. What did they do with it? Yes. They buried it. And in fact, they hired firms to disprove climate science and financed uh, climate deniers like the same people, the same law firms and lobbying firms that had worked to deny that cigarettes pr- pr- cause cancer. <laughs> right. So this is an example I gave in my article of elites uh, aware of the threat to their uh, fortunes and wealth and the destruction that would cause and choosing not to take the steps necessary to preserve their society. That's what we're seeing today. And so ExxonMobil intentionally, they, they spent money to cast doubt on climate change research. They, they pushed, they, they absolutely denied it, and that continued on the course they were taking now, even though their scientists told them otherwise. And we have looked for other sources of energy in recent last uh, 30 years or so. You know, again, since uh, the first Earth Day way back in 1970, we've, we've moved away from coal and oil consumption slowly. We're just very, very slowly and trying to, you know, cut down on it, improve gas mileage, things like that. We looked in this process at easy alternatives like natural gas and methane, which are apparently not as benign as we thought. Tell us about the trend in consumption of emissions of carbon dioxide, please. So this is this is another way, other indicators that tell us uh, that things are uh, that we we persist uh, in bad practices. That's that's the third of the three. Factors uh-huh. that Diamond is is number one is uh, noticing changes, and then number two is persisting, and the the third is failing to radicalize society. Mm. And uh, we, so uh, the the evidence is that we are aware. Now we're aware. Nobody could say we're not aware. Yeah. That, uh, that climate change is affecting us, yet we persist in behaviors that we know are going to make things worse. It's as if uh, people having one, one step is, you know, you, you suppress information about cigarettes and cancer. Right. That worked for a while. Now everybody knows that cigarettes cause cancer, yet some people persist in smoking cigarettes. Well, uh, uh, sad to say, the same is true with driving fossil fuel-powered vehicles. We know that that's bad for the climate, uh, but we persist in doing that. When, and whole societies are organized around fossil fuel consumption. Uh, I, I give an example of China. Uh, Ch- China has said 
it's going to take the leadership in trans transforming its energy from fossil fuels to renewables, and it's made progress in that direction. But it's still the biggest coal consumer in the world. In fact, it's increasing its coal consumption. Mm. It consumes more coal than the rest of the world combined. And it's still increasing its coal consumption, even though it, uh, climate change is proving increasingly destructive to China. Uh, this summer has been exceedingly harsh yes. for China. Yeah, it's it's been kind of apocalyptic in many places. Absolutely. I mean, that's a, a big word to use, apocalyptic. It seems like an exaggeration. But boy, you know, a lot of people who have been through a lot of things would suggest that it's not so apocalyptic. And in terms of, you know, continuing to use fossil fuel in, in cars, I every now and then there seems to be a surge in buying big, heavy cars and trucks, especially trucks. And I see more and more of them. It's like, you know, just uh, as the old saying, you know, goes about Nero fiddling while Rome burns and just, oh, have a good time. You know, just, just buy a big car that used, you know, gets just single digit miles per gallon. It's just, uh, boy, denial is not a river in Egypt and people just do that. And uh, I, I wonder about, you know, what kind of, emissions are are absorbable or what kind of level is there that that we can deal with i mean there's going to be emissions people you know if you burn a fire in your fireplace there's the sulfur that comes up with that there, there's emissions and i wonder if you have any idea about the maximum amount that scientists believe the planet can absorb without experience experiencing see, see the the problem is that it takes 50 years uh. for current emissions to be dispersed in the atmosphere. Whoa. So uh, every, every ton of carbon dioxide that we pump out today, and we pump out more today than any previous day in human history, each day we're pumping out more, uh, Oh, that's going to be in the atmosphere for the next 50 years. So the only way to make a difference, and scientists are very clear about that, is to go to zero tomorrow. Oh. There's no in-between that's safe. Only zero is safe. Well, clearly now, that's not going to happen. And, you know, that's why one has, can wonder, is this irreversible? Is this uh, civilization's collapse is it too late to do anything about it? I don't know. And, and Well, there's, a, you know, the answer to that is some civilizations, some societies on Earth are probably going to collapse. Others are going to fragment. I, I, I don't see uh, countries like Nigeria, Indonesia, India, Pakistan, maybe even China surviving the impacts of climate change in the coming 50 years. Now, that's my view. Uh, some other places may remain intact, uh, but that's only if we make dramatic changes in the coming years and cut, cut back sharply in our fossil fuel consumption. But the signs, the signs of... When I say collapse, we also see signs of societies this summer 
losing control. And that's what my article was about, consistent with Jared Diamond. What happens is society's ruling elites lose control Mm. of their society. And we've seen that in numerous cases. Uh, One of the cases I I give is Canada. Yes. We think of Canada as really a modern, together, uh, in-control country. But if you study political science, the first thing you learn in political science is what constitutes a state, a nation state, Yes, is that it has control of its borders. And Canada has abandoned control of like three quarters of the country and told people to evacuate because it's burning out of control. And, it, and, and Canada has given up putting out forest fires because wow. it, it doesn't have the capacity anymore. So whole, whole provinces are being emptied out, wow. like the Yukon Territory. This, this is a sign of a society that's losing control, and, and it's irreversible. Yeah, they, that's, as you say, I mean, one of the definitions of a state, a nation state, is that, you know, it controls, it has control over uh, that area within its borders. But that's it, right. it's lost control. Is it not hyperbole to say that maybe Canada is on the verge of becoming a failed state in this regard? Well, I... I You know, from a political science point of view, I would argue that it is. Now, the Canadian government, of course, would deny this. But ask ask the indigenous communities that live in northern Quebec province and the other provinces that have been told to evacuate and told you're probably never going back because the basis the um, ecologies on which you the ecosystems on which you depended have been destroyed and and will never be recreated in the future mm. so your way of life has been destroyed permanently uh, so from their point of view it's certainly a failed state oh. they have uh, yeah it's it's you know, we we here in the U.S. we've we've all heard about the fires. We've seen photographs of the smoke, but the magnitude is is not really well understood. And it is apparently it's huge. And as you say, they've lost control of their hinterland. Lost control of their hinterland. That's that's some serious stuff. And we haven't experienced that yet. And just in case people have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about how a lack of democracy has exacerbated uh, the, uh, cl- as the approach toward civilization's collapse by leaving the elites in charge and making bad decisions about uh, uh, polluting the earth that uh, is leading to uh, perhaps civilization's collapse. Our, our guest is uh, Professor Michael Clare who's written an article, we are witnessing the first stages of civilization's collapse. And, you know, I, I haven't given up everything. You know, I still, I, I, we, we use uh, oil products and certain things. And as a creature of the mid-20th century in America, I'm trying to be a good citizen, a conscious consumer. I will confess, I have to have a cheeseburger a couple, just a couple times a year. It's like, I've really got to have a cheeseburger. But you say, and I'm guilty, what can I say? Industrial 
scale beef production is a bigger factor than we might think. Tell us about that, please. Do I have to stop? Probably. I, I don't want to make you feel guilty about oh, it's too having late. A, I'm already guilty. a cheeseburger or, or your listeners feel guilty about that or 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 make people feel guilty for for, uh, for, for things they for flying for example flying is another uh-huh, terrible yes. uh, use of fossil fuels we all do some of that the issue is elite control uh-huh. and that of course is what your show is about uh, as so long as we have fossil fuel leaderships in control of the major states we're not going to overcome fossil we're not going to overcome climate change, and that means our children and grandchildren are going to suffer in hell. So if, that's, if we really want to protect them against those horrors, we have to get rid of the existing leadership in all of these countries through, you know, through the democratic process. And that means getting involved in elections yes. and, and getting candidates who are committed to... Uh, to to energy changes and other changes uh, radically and quickly. That's the only thing that's going to make a difference. And uh, and I say that to everybody who's listening. If you really care about your children and grandchildren and you want them to live in a planet that's habitable, we have to eliminate everybody who stands in the way of climate change action. Uh, everything else doesn't matter. I wonder if there are examples of civilizations that have started to recognize that there's a serious threat to their continued existence and have taken steps to turn things around and to make different choices. I I don't know if there are any examples of that. It's always nice to have something we can look at as a good example, but I don't know if there are any. Do you know? Well, there were were certainly societies on the planet today that are moving faster than we are. Uh, You could say that. Uh, The European Union and Japan, um, and I'm sure there are other countries, but those two in particular, uh, the European Union countries, I should say, and Japan, have stricter uh, requirements for for energy efficiency. Uh, and offer more incentives for installing solar panels and wind panels, uh, wind turbines. So, yes, there, there are places that are moving more quickly than us, but, you know, they're not moving fast enough. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's and, and their contributions to global emissions are less than those of China, the U.S., and India. Yes. Uh, so, so even if they reduce their emissions more than we do, it, it's not solving the global problem. I, I have to say, and I did a show oh, a few weeks ago about uh, Gustavo Petro, who is the new president of Colombia. He's really taking the lead. It's been seriously impressive in, in making in green steps, in, in, in actual fairly big changes uh, about what's happening in Colombia. And 
I th- perhaps the people in South America, in the global south, in certain parts of it anyway, are realizing that uh, we got to do something here. And, you know, so Colombia is leading the way. Who knew that, that, that this would be happening? Uh, yeah, well, cer- certainly there are other countries in the global south that, that are taking leadership in one way or the other. Uh, voluntarily or not, yeah. uh, you know, C- Cuba is suffering because it's it's been oh, subject yeah. to harsh American economic sanctions, and it's no longer getting free oil from Venezuela and Russia, and uh, so uh, people have had to rely on bicycles more, and th- that's not necessarily a matter of choice, but mm-hmm. uh, yes, they're showing the way in, in that respect. And I got to ask, some people on the left insist that the problem is capitalism itself, that as long as we have an economic system in which the drive for profit dictates the range of our choices, there's no hope for real change. And these people on the left would, you know, scoff at what former Congressman Dick Gephardt called capitalism with a conscience. Uh, that it doesn't exist, that there can be no such thing. Is it possible to abandon some harmful practices and adopt new means of production still within the capitalist system, or or is it capitalism per se that is, I mean, I have feelings about this, uh, but I, 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 I... I know this is a matter of debate. So, uh, number one, the leading consumer of coal in the world are Chinese communist state-owned corporations. So to what degree they're profit-motivated would would require a bunch of economists to argue about, you know, whether it's capitalist or not, and they wouldn't agree. But, you know, they're communist state-owned corporations, so they're hardly capitalist enterprises as we know it. And they're the worst, okay? So as far as I'm concerned... Uh, that erases that argument. Do you, but go ahead. Uh, what I would say is that uh, dependence on resource extraction and is a product of the industrial age, which every contemporary ideology, communism, socialism, capitalism, and the other isms all rest on ever-increasing industrial expansion. Mm. And it's that, it, it's, it's the politics of resource extractivism and consumption that's driving us to a world of hell, of, 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 of incineration. So what we need is a politics of, of, uh, of, of moderation ah. and and equity equity and moderation, and I, I I think probably that's best. You know the various various uh, various religions and beliefs have called for such a such a, a a way. You know Buddhism practices that kind of a a path. But I'm not. This is not my field of expertise. But but I could answer definitively that it is extractivism uh-huh. and industrialization that is at the root of the climate change disaster. 
Yes, and I, I, I just have the sense that, I mean, typically people on the left, or many people on the left, uh, have this notion that well, purity is the way to go, that you can't, that you can't compromise, that, you know, and, and it's a sort of a, a, a guarantee of losing. If you're going to say, well, as long as capitalism exists, there's nothing we can do. Because you know what? We're not going to overthrow capitalism immediately. There has to be, as you say, some sense of moderation. I happen to believe that, yes, there can be it, uh, capitalism with a conscience, that it's, it's about greed, greed and selfishness and you know, just not even considering the effects of what you do, what your business does on the planet. That's a problem. But that doesn't, I mean, because you're not going to overthrow capitalism. It's just, it's not going to, I mean, China is, they have a state capitalism in a way, you know, and it's just, it's not going to happen. That, that sort of ensures a failure, in my yeah, opinion. Okay, but cap- capitalism is not the issue. Right. Uh, it's, it's, it is consumptionism that's the issue. Yes. And, and we just consume too much. Some of us, that is to say, consume way too much uh, of things in the process of which we consume it causes harm yeah. to the planet. That's the root of the problem of climate change. And in, until we stop consuming too much of fossil fuels and, and produce too much uh, agriculture in factories that also produce emissions, we're not going to stop what we see this summer of increasing, increasing catastrophe. So uh, we have to uh, we have to adopt new modes of consumption, and these needn't be harsh. Uh, uh, a, a, a society based on wind power and solar power and other alternatives can be a very satisfying, pleasant lifestyle. Yes. And and it's the Buddhists you mentioned uh, Buddhism before you know talk about uh, and they recognize how buying more stuff you know you're always searching for more stuff more stuff and it doesn't bring satisfaction it never does and in the process it's you know creating more you know filling up landfills and we, we hopefully you know people are starting to under, understand and, and maybe that's part of the process of facing this you know horrible uh, uh threat of of climate change that we can do other things and and not have to buy so much stuff more and more stuff um i i did want to you know there's the united nations which i think has a lot of potential but I mean, the, the far right back in when I was young, people used to, you know, the far right used to say, "Well, get the UN out of the US, get the US out of the UN." Now, a lot of people in the Republican Party have kind of adopted uh, the position of the John Birch Society and moved even further to the right against the power of the United Nations. And, you know, they're like world government. Oh no, that's a terrible conspiracy. But the potential for action by the United Nations is always there in many, many situations, including what we're talking about. Just recently, there's something called the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child issued a report which said that all countries have a legal obligation 
a legal obligation to protect children from environmental degradation. All countries have a legal obligation to protect children from environmental degradation, including regulating business enterprise. Ooh, regulating, oh, sounds like a communist conspiracy. And to allow their young citizens to seek legal recourse. And there was a bit of hope recently in the American state of Montana. Young people won a similar victory in that state's Supreme Court by declaring, the Supreme Court declared they have a right to a clean environment. So perhaps all is not lost. Maybe some people are starting to get it. Your thoughts on that the UN report and the idea of that you know children have a right to be protected from environmental degradation. Well, this is good. Uh, the best part of what you just said is active youth activism. Yes, on climate. That's that's the important issue because, as I say, uh, we're not going to get significant, uh, meaningful change un- unless there's a political shift in the power centers of the major powers. Uh, And that's going to take political organizing and youth activism. Uh, So that's the part that matters. I I don't think the UN can accomplish that. I think it has to come from within the major fossil fuel countries. And I think that's going to come from young people. Uh, by the way, I, I understand that on September 15th, there are going to be major rallies in New York City at the U.N. where there's going to be a big meeting on climate change action led by Antonio Guterres, the secretary general, and, uh, and that uh, uh, climate organizations are going to call, have called for a rally. At, the, at that UN meeting on uh-huh. September 15th. And, and my impression is that a lot of young people are playing a key role in mobilizing for that event. So that's, that's what we have to look, that's what gives me hope. Yeah, it gives me some hope too. I mean, I, I have two kids and I, I worry about their future and I see a lot of young people are, they're getting it, they're involved. I mean, when the Republicans uh, cheered on the banning of uh, abortions, boy, that was a dumb thing because uh, they're, they're firing young people up. Uh, they're firing young people up about the environment as well by ignoring this. And I did want to ask, I have to ask about y- your book, All Hell Breaking Loose, The Pentagon's Perspective on Climate Change. What is the Pentagon's perspective on climate change? Do tell. Well, it's very interesting. Uh, first of all, the Department of Defense and the U.S. intelligence community uh, were very quick, uh, at least as far back as 2010, to identify climate change as a threat to national security. And I think that's important because uh, for for the Republicans we're talking about and uh, and people who who identify with the military and patriotism and the like um, uh, when when they hear about when they hear about climate change as a national security threat from generals and admirals I think it carries more weight uh-huh. than when they hear about it from say environmental activists or or climate scientists and senior officers did 
as early as 2010, identify climate change as a national security threat. And they said this this was the case for a couple of reasons. Uh, One, because they saw that it was going to create new sources of instability around the world, Ah. especially in the developing world by creating uh, food and water uh, scarcities and shortages, which would then in turn uh, increase civil dissent and civil wars and and oh, mobilize terror, terrorists, which we now seeing in all over Africa, uh, in Nigeria, in Niger, in Mali, and uh, if you people are following the news, a uh, sharp increase in terrorist and insurgent activity, all these areas have been heavily damaged by climate change. Mm. And uh, and in Latin America, this is happening. And what does that do? It generates refugees, and it creates a refugee crisis. And that poses, we know, it, it that, that that's the origin of the wall and all the political mm. trouble that causes. But climate change is also threatening the survival of U.S. bases and its sure. and, and its ability to fight foreign wars. So, uh, for example, uh, the hurricane that just struck Florida uh, threatened, we have a very large concentration of military bases in Florida, naval bases, Air Force bases. They all had to be evacuated and shut down uh, as a result of, of the hurricane. Same thing happened in Florida with the hurricane there. The bases had to be evacuated. So the increase in extreme weather threatens the ability of the military to fight foreign wars. Mm. And add all this up, and they see a time in the not-too-distant future when the U.S. will be so beset with climate emergencies that the military will not be able to defend the country from foreign wars, oh foreign threats, mm. because it will be spending all of its time uh, defending the U.S. from climate change. So their intelligence branch is actually gathering some genuine intelligence, and they're looking ahead and able to see what a lot of uh, non-defense people... Uh, don't want to see that this is something real and it really is a threat to our national security. That's fascinating. I have to ask, is it not too late? I mean, why why should we not party like it's 1999, as Prince sang about? Just say, it's over, we're done. Well, there, you know, it, it, it's reasonable for some people to might think that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the thing is, it's going to be each year is going to get worse. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, maybe, yeah. it, it's hard to answer that particular question. I, as somebody who's a new grandparent and is absolutely devoted to my granddaughter, I, I'll do everything I can as long as I live to make the world safe for her. And and if there are any other grandparents listening to this, mm. that's what they have to do when they're not with their grandchildren or their children. They have to spend the rest of the, every other hour that they're not working uh, trying to make the planet safe for their children and grandchildren because it won't be if they don't.
And the children themselves, the young people themselves, Generation Z or whatever it is, they can take action themselves, and they are. They're waking. Yes. They're they're making their voices heard. Those those young people in Montana, they did an amazing thing, a terrific thing. Yeah, but we can't leave it to them. No, that's for sure. Well, if people want to follow your work, is there any? Uh, what can can you suggest? Any particular uh, publication? Well, I write for the Nation magazine, and I have Excellent. many articles there. So just go to thenation.com and put in my name. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, we will all work on it together. Michael Clare, thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Sure. Good talking with you. You too. Thanks. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much. Slice and burn, return, listen to yourself, churn Locking in uniform and foot, burning blood, red in every motive, escalate Automotive, incinerate, light a candle, light a motor, step down, step down Watching heel crush, crush up, oh, this means no fear Cavalier, renegade, steer clear, tournament, a tournament, a tournament of lies Offer me solutions, offer me alternatives, and I decline It's the end of the world as we know it It's the end of the world as we know it it's the end of the world.